You're listening to the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast with Joris Brion. Hey, this is Joris of the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast, and today I'm really excited to talk to Bill D'Alessandro. Bill, he's the CEO and founder of Elements Brands, and that's a company that owns a portfolio of consumer products brands. And uh, he started with a single brand in 2010, I believe, and has grown the company to 10 brands now. Um, they have over 300 products, um, eight figures of revenue, 37 employees, uh, very impressive, all of that. So I'm sure this is going to be a very interesting uh, episode. Bill, welcome to the podcast. I'm super happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Yours, Nice to be here. Cool. Um, yeah, just to get started, I'd, I'd love for you to tell a bit about your background and, and uh, where you come from in your career. How did you get started in e-commerce and how did you get to, to this point? Yeah, sure. So I my background is in computer science and finance. I studied computer science in school. I'm kind of a, uh, then built a couple uh, apps on the side. Uh, I also have worked in investment banking, spent um, Three, two years in investment banking and three years in private equity uh, before leaving that job to start a company that became Elements Brands. So I'm a reformed investment banker and I like uh, sitting here in shorts and a t-shirt uh, at my desk. So I like uh-huh. the attire, attire and entrepreneurship a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, and and you started with one particular brand. What, what one? Uh, which one was that? Yeah, the brand I started with was called KP Elements, and that's why the company's name evolved into Elements Brands. So we mm-hmm. focus on three primary areas. Uh, KP Elements was a skincare product, and we've since acquired several other skincare, hair care, and other cosmetics products. So that's one mm-hmm. of the categories we focus on. We also love pet product brands. Um, we own a brand called the Natural Dog Company, mm-hmm. uh, and then we also do uh, household household products. So uh, our flagship brand there is a brand called Rock and Green Laundry Detergent. Okay, so um, yeah, you'll already mentioned that you one of your areas of ex- expertise is is buying and selling businesses, and I'm sure that a lot of uh, the listeners will be interested because maybe one day they're dreaming of uh, selling their business. Um, uh, and but what kind of brands or companies do you typically look for? Uh, yeah. So besides being in one of the three areas I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. cosmetics slash personal care, uh, household goods or pet, uh, we look for brands that have been around for at least five years. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, we want to find a brand that's really a brand, you know, that's not mm-hmm. just a flash in the pan or that's just a, essentially a search engine rank position. You know, someone's taking advantage of a little eddy in the Google or Amazon algorithm. Uh, we really want to see that the brand has staying power, that consumers know it. Uh, and that they keep coming back. So we have a, a line at five years of history for the brands we buy. Uh, and then we also look for brands with above half a million in annual owner earnings. So that mm-hmm. typically corresponds with revenue kind of at the 2 million side on the low end. And then we'll go up as high as kind of 10 million plus uh, mm-hmm. in sales. Uh, we look for companies that have their own brand, their own branded products. So we don't buy folks who are essential e-commerce retailers sell other people's products. Uh, okay. We look for something that some brand that makes their own product. Uh, we also look for brands that are replenishable, uh, so consumable, uh, so people come back again and again, and we can create that kind of lifetime repeat purchase relationship with the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, we don't buy any brands that are more than 50% of their revenue from Amazon.com. 
Uh, and that's because mm-hmm. we like to see a healthy channel mix uh, to show that the customers are willing to come to your brand directly and buy from you, and that you can generate traffic and demand uh, elsewhere besides just Amazon. That to us is a real a marker of a quote unquote real brand with staying power. Yeah. Okay. Because on on Amazon, you're never sure about the future, of course. And and if you if you're the master of your own brand and your own uh, target audience, basically, uh, it's yeah, it's it's a lot more uh, stable, I can imagine. So uh, you also mentioned like a box mover, someone who just sells stuff uh, other companies make, and uh, that's not a good match for you. Uh, not a good match for us. No. no. Why not? Uh, because you don't really have anything unique in that case, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're selling Tide detergent, tons of other people, including Walmart, are selling Tide detergent. Um, mm-hmm. So you do, it's very hard. I mean, everybody's read about kind of the bloodbath that is offline retail, but online retail is not any better. I mean, besides the huge brands, think kind of Walmart, name one online e-commerce retailer mm-hmm. that succeeds. Um, and there's really not very many at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when you're selling other people's products, the margins are not very good um, because you know the manufacturer, the person whose brand it actually is, has to make a margin. So you're probably getting just you know 50% gross margin uh, at best. Uh, you also don't control things like uh, your product development pipeline. Um, you've got, again, other people selling it. You, got, you might end up with a uh, race to the bottom on price. There's just so much you don't control. Uh, when you don't own the brand, kind of soup to nuts. Mm, yeah, that makes uh, absolute sense. Um, there's also a couple of uh, markets that you avoid, right? Um, like technology is not really your thing. Fashion is not really uh, your thing. Um, is that deliberate to focus on skincare, pet products, household? Or is it also because you don't see any potential in those mm. other uh, markets? Uh, well, I'll I'll answer this kind of question in, in two parts. For okay. us, Elements Brands, personally, uh, as I said, we focus on consumable products, and mm-hmm. consumable products tend to fit into the three categories I mentioned earlier: cosmetics, mm-hmm. household goods, or pet, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, and we there are a few things that we don't do explicitly for very specific reasons. Uh, one of them is food and beverage. Uh, yeah. which you know would, would fit our replenishable criteria. But the thing about food and beverage is beyond just the fact that you know it's it's perishable and uh, it's heavy, uh, it's cheap, you know, low price points. So you end up your shipping costs more than you know try to sell a granola bar online for two dollars. You can't make any money. You have to be selling 12 packs, you know, which is a big commitment for a consumer. Uh, so kind of beyond all that, uh, even worse for food and beverage is it's really one of the last categories to come online uh, in a major way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most people, most of us still buy our food and beverage offline for the most part. And, you know, right. some of it with, and Amazon's trying to get into it with Amazon Now and Fresh and all that stuff. Uh, but e-commerce is already hard enough. There's no reason to plan hard mode uh, in a category that is not uh, as deeply penetrated by e-commerce as anything else. It's, it's the worst penetrated category. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't do food. Uh, we don't do consumer technology because the customer support and return rates uh, are really high. I've heard as high as 20% uh, of units sold are returned, uh, plus all the customer support, uh, all your quality control issues, all that stuff is manufactured in Asia, which if anybody listening manufactured in Asia knows that it can be a, uh, can be a struggle to keep your arms around the quality control. Um, and also you deal with you kind of a lot of counterfeiting, a lot of... Uh, kind of hijacking all that stuff when you do electronics. So we steer clear of that. 
Um, and then we steer clear fashion, as you mentioned earlier, because um, again, the price points can be a little bit lower. Uh, at high price points, it becomes very kind of image-driven marketing. You're doing a lot of photo shoots and fashion shoots, and it's it's just a type of marketing, frankly, that I'm not very good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, there's a ton of inventory complexity because if you want to offer a sweater, well, you got to offer it in red, green, and blue, and you got to offer it in small, medium, large, and extra large. And one SKU just turned into 12 SKUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you end up with kind of inventory hell. Just ask any fashion retailer. Uh, and on top of that, your SKUs turn over four times a year, spring, win- spring fall, summer, winter, right? right uh, you yeah. need different collections and your inventory goes obsolete. Uh, it's, it's a hard business model. Uh, in mm-hmm. fashion, I know some people do very well in accessories, stuff that's not seasonal or sized. Uh, so if you're going to do fashion and steer clear away from the seasonal stuff and the size stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of my last caveat to this is uh, I've been outlining, you've asked me to outline my criteria, which I have. And I want to provide the big asterisks that these are our criteria. Uh, right. These are the things that work for us, for Elements Brands, for the way our business is set up. Uh, I do not mean this to be kind of some sort of proclamation from on high about what a good business is, you know, good in Mm -hmm. quotes. Um, There are lots of good businesses that do not fit our criteria. Uh, And for me as an investor, and for anyone as an investor, it's really about picking your spots and knowing where you're good. So Mm -hmm. these things that I disqualify, I disqualify them for us, but it does not by any stretch mean that they're not good businesses and cannot be great businesses to own and sell to other people. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good nuance. Um, I can imagine that there are uh, people listening right now and, and thinking about selling their, their e-commerce, but wondering how much their e-commerce is, is worth. Do you have like rules of thumb? Uh, I know it's never going to be 100% correct, but do you have rules of thumbs of them to to define the the, the value of uh, of an e-commerce? Uh, yeah, let me answer this again in slightly an indirect way. Um, mm-hmm. A business is worth what someone will pay for it. Uh, so okay. if uh, if you are selling your business and somebody offers you a crazy number, uh, you should take it, uh, and that's mm-hmm. what your business is worth because they they're going to give you that price for it. Um, so what I will report. Uh, in order to be a little bit more useful than that is kind of averages uh, mm-hmm. and where the market is because for the most part, the prices of businesses that are for sale are set by the market and the market is pretty efficient. Um, if, you're, if your business is underpriced, it will get bid up. If your business is overpriced, you're not going to get any bids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the market is more efficient than it ever has been. When I started in 2013 doing acquisitions, uh, there was some stuff that was mispriced, uh, you know, to my benefit in some cases. Uh, but I've seen a lot of that get competed away as buyers get more sophisticated and more capital comes into the space, which is great for sellers. Um, so all that being said, if you if you own a, we'll call it kind of a typical e-commerce business with nothing wrong with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're doing a couple hundred thousand uh, or more in owner's benefit. Uh, you're selling, you know, primarily online, you know, it doesn't really much matter for the numbers I'm about to quote, whether you're mostly Amazon or mostly on your own website. Um, your business is kind of flat to up. Uh, it's not declining. There's nothing broken. It's not exploding. It's not contracting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're growing 10% a year, 20% a year, something like that. Uh, if that is the range that you are in, your business is likely in the market going to be worth between two and a half and three and a half to four times your 
annual profits on a trailing 12-month basis. Mm. Um, so if you made $100,000 last year from your business, meaning put in your pocket, uh, if you made $100,000 last year from your business, your business is likely worth between $250,000 and $400,000. Okay. Yeah, that's a, a good number to keep in mind. Um, so let's say they, one of the listeners wants to sell their store. How, how do you find a buyer, actually? Where, where do you start? So hands down, if you want to sell your store, the best thing you can do is hire a broker. Mm -hmm. uh, a business broker is a lot like a real estate agent. You want to sell your house, you hire a real estate agent. You want to sell your business, you hire a business broker. Um, there are a bunch of them out there. Uh, I'll mention a few uh, who I know and, and have worked with. Uh, the guys at Quiet Light Brokerage, uh, the guys at Website Closers, FE International, um, and website properties are four that specialize in e-commerce businesses. You can also go to centurica.com and I think they have a listing of several. Um, but when you hire a broker, they maintain relationships with a bunch of buyers like me. So uh, they know what I'm looking for. Um, and you can either, if you're listening and your business fits my criteria, just call me directly and save yourself the brokerage fee. Um, but... Uh, they uh, so they'll know who their buyers are. They've got you know hundreds or thousands of buyers, and they'll reach out to them directly and connect you. They'll take a fee of about ten percent of the transaction price, mm -hmm. um, but they are worth it because you will probably get at least ten percent more for your business because they will show you how to position it. They'll tell you what buyers are looking for. They help you prepare your financials. They'll write a little book, you know, like a twenty-page book about your business, about the products, about your competitors, about your industry, about your history. They'll help you put together financials, all that stuff. Um, so they're worth the fee that they charge. So if you want to sell your business, I would reach out to one of the folks that I just mentioned uh, and kind of interview them all and figure out who you like the best. Okay. Yeah, that's actually really good, a good advice. Um, and, and what does that typical acquisition process look like? I can imagine it, it takes a lot longer than um, most of the sellers would want to and buyers maybe as well. It does. So if you if you call Joe at Quiet Light Brokerage and you say, hey, I want to sell my business, you sign up with Joe, uh, you will probably end up with a check in about six months if everything mm -hmm. goes great. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be as long as a year. Um, and that kind of breaks down as follows. If you sign up uh, with your broker, they're going to take, you know, kind of as long as you take to give them all the information to write the book, um, the Confidential Information Memorandum or SIM. Uh, at which point they will email it out to all their buyers. They'll proactively call the ones they think are particularly good fits. And they'll set up some conference calls with you uh, and all the buyers. Where the buyers will grill you. They'll sign NDAs first. They'll grill you about their business, ask you some questions, uh, and then submit indications of interest, which will be kind of, hey, preliminarily, based on assuming everything you've told us is true, here's what we offer you for your business. Mm -hmm. um, you'll pick one the best one. And remember, best can be highest price, but it can also be uh, fastest to close. Some people might need a loan. Some people might have cash. Some people might be your biggest competitor. Some people, you might not like their face. You know, whoever it is, whatever it is, yeah. you know, you'll pick the best for you. Uh, and then you'll sign something called a letter of intent or LOI. Mm -hmm. uh, and what the LOI does is it gives the buyer 
uh, between 60 and 90 days or 30 and 90 days usually uh, of exclusivity, meaning you agree not to talk to any other buyers. Uh, and the buyer will probably fly out and see you or at least ask you for a bunch of information. Uh, they'll probably start spending money on lawyers to draw up the legal documents, on accountants, maybe to audit your numbers. Uh, that exclusivity gives the buyer comfort to start spending money on the deal, knowing that you're not going to sell it out from underneath them uh, at the last minute. Uh, right. And that's the time where you're going to get, you know, essentially the proctology exam of your business by the buyer to ensure that everything you told them before uh, in the sim is actually correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and, they'll, and they'll also get a lot deeper. Uh, this will all be under NDA, of course. Uh, and provided the buyer is satisfied that everything you told them before is true and they don't find any, you know, huge turds floating in the proverbial punch bowl, mm -hmm. uh, they will, before the end of the exclusivity period, send you a check, send you a wire transfer uh, for your business. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it will be the full amount up front. Sometimes it will include some seller financing or earnout. Mm -hmm. um, and then typically most buyers will ask for roughly 30 days of transition assistance after you get the check. So if you add all that up, you know, kind of as fast as four or five months, if it goes warp mm -hmm. speed. Um, but, you know, sometimes you can get under LOI, you can waste two months with a buyer and he backs out and you're kind of back to square one with another buyer. So anywhere from kind of four to five on the short end to 12 on the long end. Yeah, and I can imagine it's a nerve-wracking process because uh, it, it can still go wrong in the end. Uh, when uh, To use your own terminology, when they go deeper in the proctology exam, that sounds really weird. Uh, but when they go deeper then and they find stuff, it, after a few months, it can still uh, backfire, right? The entire right. Deal. Yeah. And, that's, and that's the value of a broker also right. because the broker will... You know, look, there's something wrong with every business, right? Mine included. All mm -hmm. businesses have warts. And the broker will help you to present the things that are not perfect about your business in a way mm -hmm. that it won't scare a buyer. Okay. Um, and it'll help you kind of to frame it in the right way so the buyer understands. Uh, and the broker will also kind of manage the buyer and say, look, this, is, this guy's bought two businesses from me already. Uh, he's closed every time at the same price and on time. You know, this is a guy you can trust. You should go with him. Mm -hmm. So this is the real value a broker can bring to the process for you. Yeah. Okay. And and uh, so, what kind of advice would you give if someone is thinking of maybe contacting a broker? Is there anything they have to make sure they have? Uh, yeah, they have an order before uh, they reach out to brokers. Uh, so, so I I am friends with a number of brokers, and you'd be shocked. Uh, sometimes they get basically people don't even know their numbers. Or I knew one guy who a seller sent him a bunch of yellow legal pads, which were his financials for the past three years okay. on legal pads. <laughs> uh, I've known other folks who had to reconstruct financials from credit card statements. So yeah. if that is you, uh, know that your broker will probably hate you, but he'll also take your business. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So no, there's no reason not to make a phone call if that's you. But if that is you also, your broker would really appreciate it if you took the time to compile them into uh, you know, well-organized financial statements. Um, right. Just kind of for the primary one you have to have correct is the trailing 12 months. Mm -hmm. So if, if you know, I would say the only thing you got to know uh, besides what your business is and what it does, which you obviously do already know, is how much money you made in the past 12 months. Uh, right. And that's not revenue; that's profit. If you once you know that number, you're ready to call a broker. Okay, yeah, you can make it sound easy <laughs> like that. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> well, it's easy to pick up the phone. It's that, yeah, yeah, then that part is Joe yeah. and the other guys will take you through it, right? And then it gets harder from there. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so once you with Elements Brands, you bought a, a, an e-commerce, how do you usually scale them up? Uh, so ha- I have a, a good friend who also buys businesses and she always jokes. Uh, I don't know if uh, where you are yours, but in my part of the country, they have these billboards that say, we buy ugly houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always like to joke that we buy ugly websites uh, <laughs> because, one, yeah. you know, like any business, as I said, has something wrong with it. Like even yeah. the best business has something wrong with it. And there, there's actually been a lot of psychological studies that prove that we are better at solving other people's problems than we are at our own at solving our own problems mm-hmm. because we have some distance, right? Some emotional distance from those problems. So when we buy a business, kind of the first thing we do is essentially repaint the house. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean redo the website, but we kind of objectively look at the whole business in a way that the owner wasn't able to just because he or she was too close to it. Um, and we say like, what is objectively broken? Uh, and we fix that thing. And sometimes it can be the website's terrible. Sometimes it can be this business owner never sent any email marketing ever, or this business is not on Amazon or, you know, this business has never tried Facebook ads, you know, just the things that are glaringly obvious. Um, and to be totally candid, sometimes that's enough to grow the business by 50%, just by kind of implementing the best practices playbook across the entire business. You know, we've, as I said, we've done this six times now and have been doing it since 2010. So we've kind of got what we call our playbook uh, Mm -hmm. of best practices across everything, you know, from, from ads to web design to shipping and fulfillment, uh, all that stuff. Uh, and we implement our best practices kind of across the board, uh, one by one. And it ain't rocket science. Uh, it's just very good regimented process. Yeah. And, and I can imagine in a, in a, when you're considering buying an, an e-commerce and, and you see those low-hanging fruits uh, just hanging there and ready to be picked, uh, that that triggers you as well to, uh, to make a move and, and, and buy the e-commerce store. Um, right, right. And and that's another another plug for hiring a broker. A broker will help you to identify your low-hanging fruit and polish right. them up and point them out to the buyer. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have your best practices playbook. So, obviously, you have a ton of experience when it comes to growing an e-commerce business. Uh, and, and But what do you believe are, like, two or three keys to grow an e-commerce business in today's environment? Sure. So... I'll just start with the easiest one that almost no one does enough of, which I mentioned earlier, email marketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you are not emailing your list at least once a week, you're leaving money on the table, period. Mm -hmm. I have so much data to back that up. Mm -hmm. Uh, People will not unsubscribe. If you email them less than once in a week, they will forget who you are, and then they will unsubscribe when you do email them. so email at least once a week. We've gone to two or even three times a week okay. uh, for some of our brands. Uh, it's just absolutely easy money. And is that all like uh, product or promotional uh, emailing or is that also content emails? A lot of content emails. So we we are really not that heavy on the promo. I mean, of course, we do some. Um, we very rarely do like, you know, 20% off across the board. Like we'll do, if we're going to do discount, we'll do 20% off this one product or this mm-hmm. one product line. Uh, and then we'll segment it. And like, let's say we had two products, A and B. If you had bought A, well, you're going to get 20% off product B this week. And if you mm-hmm. brought B, you're going to get 20% off product A. 
this week, right? To try to cross sell and get you to try something new because we know you already right. like the one the one you bought before and are probably willing to pay full price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we use a tool called Clavio, uh, K L A Y V I O, to do that. Yeah, and I believe Clavio is, is hands down the, the best platform out there to do this kind of stuff. And so I can imagine you're using Clavio, so you're uh, obviously doing some flows as well in Clavio, right? Yes, absolutely. Lots of flows. Uh, I think we do uh, over 10 grand a week of revenue just from flows. That's yeah. automatic. Uh, easy money. So yeah. that email marketing, you just can't do enough of it. This is yeah. not a paid endorsement but for Clavio, but <laughs> it's, right. it, it's just easy money. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I mean, we, we work a lot with Clavio as well, and it's just a, just an awesome platform. I'm not getting any money for, for saying that. but uh, And it's, it, it's like a common theme whenever I, I speak to an e-commerce business owner uh, that is, is doing very well. Uh, Clavio is always in, in the mix somehow, and they're doing a lot of email marketing, uh, at, at least, and it, it's almost always with, with Clavio. Um, one of the things I know that you're also passionate about is, is, is team building uh, and, and uh, employee incentives. Um, you spend a lot of energy on, on building the right team and the right culture. Can, can you share with us what, what exactly it is that you do? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, we've got over 30 people here mm-hmm. at Elmas Brands. Um, and at some point, you know, if if you're listening, your business is scaling, you will start to reach the point where you can't know everything that's going on in your business as a CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to start trusting your employees to make decisions on behalf of the business. Um, and the only way to get people to make the right decision and good decision and have positive culture and for your employees to understand what it is you're trying to do. And that seems obvious. Well, you know, we sell laundry detergent online. Um, but that's that's literally what you do. But figuratively, what you do is, you know, they got to understand what metrics matter. You know, should we have a sale for 20% off? If we give 20% off to everybody and our sales go up by 5%, is that good? Well, mm-hmm. no, it's not good. Um, and if our product sells for 20 bucks and I have a CPA of $25 on Facebook, is that good? Well, no, that's obviously not good. But what mm-hmm. if my product sells for 20 bucks and I have a CPA of $15 on Facebook? Is that good? Uh, well, you better be careful because your agency tells you that's good. They don't have your best interest at heart because I guarantee you, you got more caught. Co- you got some cost in your product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, revenue is not profit. Uh, so educating your employees about you know how much money the business does make, I think is really critical in order to mm-hmm. enable them, them to make the right decisions. Uh, a lot of people are really squirrely about that. Uh, a lot of business owners, uh, which I understand, you know, you don't want, you know, your employees knowing exactly how much money the business does make. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use a system and I'll propose it as a contra- compromise. If you're worried about, uh, kind of opening the whole kimono, uh, we use a metric called contribution margin, okay. uh, and, and contribution margin, I will, you're putting me on my soapbox, but this is the single most important metric in e-commerce and no one uses it and I don't understand. Okay. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me break it down for you. So yeah. contribution margin, uh, it put in, you know, in business school, they'll teach it as either contribution margin or variable profit. And mm-hmm. it is the sum total of all of the direct costs that you incur every time you ship an order. So mm-hmm. 
Obviously, one of them is cost of goods, right? You had to manufacture the widget, uh, but also all of your advertising costs, uh, your Facebook costs, right? Your Google costs, et cetera, your Amazon ads, all mm-hmm. of your Amazon fees. If you happen to sell on Amazon, you incur those on every order. Mm-hmm. Uh, outbound shipping, whether you give free shipping or not, right? Outbound mm-hmm. shipping is a cost. Uh, credit card processing is a cost. Um, all of these things, you know, the cardboard that you put the order in, every little thing that you get dinged on for every order that doesn't go away with scale, mm-hmm. put it in your contribution margin. So contribution margin is sort of the money that's left over from every order that mm-hmm. contributes to your fixed expenses. Okay. Um, and your fixed expenses, obviously, your rent, your salaries, you know, kind of corporate overhead, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we do is we fixate the entire company on contribution margin dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and we set a target at the beginning of the year. Um, so we make so many contribution margin dollars. I know what the number below the line of fixed cost is, right? Mm-hmm. I educate the employees that this isn't a profit number, this is a contribution margin number, and I still got to pay all your salaries and rent and everything else after this number. But I pick a number that will allow us to hit our profitability target uh, right. if we make it. Um, and then I beat the entire drum of the company to hitting that contribution margin number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I set their bonuses based on the contribution margin number. And we can get into how we do bonuses also, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. To be honest, it's the first time I, I hear that number. Um, <laughs> I've spoken to, I don't know, probably 100 e-commerce owners uh, over the course of uh, the last uh, few years, uh, but I've never heard that number come up. Um, and yeah, and, and how, how do you use that to uh, for your bonus system then? Yeah, I, so I'm not here, surprised to hear you say that, yours. It's crazy. No one yeah. talks about contribution margin. But it's ultimately the only number that matters, right? Because right. as your yeah. business gets huge, all of the fixed costs become de minimis, right? Mm-hmm. And your profit converges to contribution margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives you a sense for every incremental order you do, how much money do you make? Um, so totally critical. So what we do for bonuses is I really believe in incentive compensation that if you want people to think like owners, you got to incentivize them like owners. Mm. Um, so the way we do bonuses at elements brands is that every employee, every full-time employee that works here, uh, is eligible for up to 12% of their base salary as a bonus every Mm -hmm. year. And the way we break that down is I break it down differently every year. This year, what we did is we took half of it, 6% of their base salary, and mm-hmm. we tied it directly to the contribution margin dollars target. So if we hit X dollars in contribution margin, you guys will get a bonus of 6% of your annual salary. Okay. Uh, and then I took the other 6% and broke it up into 1% each. And I set with all of my leadership team and then the leadership team set with all of their employees individual, six individual goals for the year uh, that they, you know, developmental goals to achieve. And these are wildly different, you know, are they for marketing or sales or uh, customer service or whatever. Uh, So everybody gets six individual goals for the year, each worth 1%. Um, and then at the end of the year, we add up, you know, you have a review with your manager. How many of these do you achieve? So let's say you got three of six, that would be 3%. Uh, and let's say the company hit the target. That's another 6%. So you get a bonus of 9% out of a possible 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really interesting psychology when it comes to incentive comp and bonuses. Uh, and I've since learned by reading why I screwed this up, but I screwed this up 
very badly in the early years. Uh, in the early years, I did this, and I said, here's the contribution margin dollars target. Uh, and if we get it, you all get a bonus of 12% of your salary. Mm -hmm. And then I said, nothing about it for the rest of the year. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, and just nobody cared at all. Uh, yeah. And it came around and kind of we got the target and there, I got it. Everybody, gave, I gave them all a check and I expected them all to be psyched. And they were like, oh, well, cool. That's that. Uh, thanks, you know. Um, but I couldn't get them to care. Uh, mm -hmm. And it turns out that human beings really suck at like long term goals like that with no mm -hmm. regular reinforcement. Um, so what we go to is now every month. And we have an all-hands meeting, and we review contribution margin for the prior month, and then also our cumulative number for the year. And I tell people whether we're on track or off track, how we're tracking towards budget, you know, whether they're going to get their bonus. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps keep them bought in so they know what's going on. And what I want to do for next year uh, that makes it even better is if you can actually pay the bonus more regularly, because it turns out that human beings discount rewards that are in the future, right? A dollar, if I say, yours, I'll give you a dollar a year from now or a dollar a day, right? You care mm -hmm. a lot less about the dollar a year from now. Right. Uh, same yeah. thing with bonuses. So what I actually want to do is pay bonuses quarterly mm -hmm. next year. So people are like getting checks throughout the year as we do well and keeping them fired up. So they feel like they come into work, like let's make some money today. You yeah. know, so think like owners. Yeah. That makes total sense. Uh, yeah, I've never never thought about uh, about it this way. And and yes, giving them the bonus also in the short term, um, yeah, mo motivates them a lot lot more than uh, at the end of the year because that's so far away from now. And then, well, not this time of year maybe, but uh, when uh, when you start out in January and they know maybe in December I'll I'll, I'll have a bonus. That's not that motivating, uh, I guess. Yeah, cool. Right. I, I, and, I like the yes, sir. And by the time you get close, right? By the time it's like uh, motivating because it's November, you're like, oh, this check is coming. It's yeah. too late. You can't affect it anymore. Yeah. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you lost ten months by then. Yeah. Right. So you want to match kind of that motivation period, which is like the three months right before the goal, to mm -hmm. the time when you can actually affect the goal. So instead of one big monolithic annual goal, you know, mm -hmm. divide it by four or do a more sophisticated quarterly projection. Right yeah. and set quarterly goals and pay out quarterly. So I think we're going to try that next year. Yeah, makes total sense. Cool. Uh, yeah, we're uh, kind of running out of time here. But, uh, I was going to end maybe with a question: What's the number one piece of advice for people who want to grow their e-commerce? I'm kind of guessing it's going to be contribution margin, or am I wrong? Uh, no, you're right. I mean, track this metric, contribution margin, and understand mm -hmm. how much money you actually make. Because if you track contribution margin. Uh, you will understand exactly what your target CPA should be. You know, mm -hmm. if you if someone works with an agency, agency like yours, uh, you know, you people are saying, oh, I want to do break-even ad spend, and they set it at 1x their average order value. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? You're probably losing your shirt at if you define break-even ad spend as 1x your revenue sure. uh, from an order. Um, so know your contribution margin, track your businesses away, and it will help you to actually understand how much money you're making, and then you can make smart investments uh, in certain places that will grow your business and know exactly how much you're investing there as well. Yeah, so that's great advice to uh, to end this podcast with. With um, it has been great and uh, I learned a lot today about running out of time. Just want to make sure that people know how they can find you, um, how they can learn more about you. What's the best place for people uh, to connect with you? Yeah, uh, so I'm on Twitter at Bill DA. Uh, or if you want to learn more about Elements Brands, or if you happen to own a business that might be a great fit for us, the website is elementsbrands.com. That's elements with an S, brands with an S, dot com. Cool.
Cool. Thanks so much for being here, Bill. It's It's been awesome. Yeah, sure thing, yours. Thanks for having me. The E-Commerce Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Dexter.Agency. We help e-commerce business owners scientifically increase revenue without needing more traffic. Ready to discover a more reliable way to increase conversion and, more importantly, revenue? Register for our free training, The 5 Transformations That Double E-Commerce Profits, at dexter.agency slash webinar.